another exciting episode of the fire and water podcast a proud member of the fire and water podcast network i'm one of your hosts the irredeemable shag along with me as always is my co-host the illuminated manuscript creator rob kelly boy that went a long way away from where i was heading how you doing buddy i don't even know what that means all i know is we have to be on our best behavior tonight because we have a guest we do have a guest ladies and gentlemen here for the very first time making his uh fire and water network debut Mr. Zoom Yukonori. How are you doing, sir? I am fine, gentlemen. How are you? It is being my pleasure here to be. <laughs> now, did I say your name right? Zoom? Is that Zoom Yukonori? Is that right? Yes, that is correct. That is correct. So it's Zoom like uh, Flash's enemy, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. In fact, uh, when I when I watch the show with my family, the, the latest season of The Flash, I, they always look at me askance whenever uh, Jay Garrick says that I'm a nightmare that you can't wake up from. <laughs> Well, hopefully we won't be feeling that way by the end of the podcast today. <laughs> Folks, uh, Rob had a fantastic idea, uh, which he probably stole from someone else, because it just doesn't make any sense that it was his, for all of us to get together and discuss some of our favorite artists. And uh, we couldn't think of anyone better to have on board but Zoom for this, given the um, numerous amount of artistic uh, creations he has loaned us for the show in all the different artistic styles that he's done. Uh, if, you, if you listen to our Who's Who show, you know Zoom is uh, – you're a staple of the show by now, honestly, with all your custom Who's Who entries. But before well, we get any further – I'm sorry. What were you going to say, sir? No, I was just saying that was not my intention, sir, but thank you. <laughs> well, before we go any further, we do need to take a moment to thank our sponsor. Folks, the Fire and Water Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, as Doom, as our guest, I wouldn't expect you to have a contribution, so you can just sit back while Rob and I do Lars. Well, actually, Shag, I do have a contribution, but it is your show, so after you. Wow, a guest who brought uh, a contribution for the InStar Trades. That's amazing. You can suck it, Bailey. 
Um, well, all right. Well, then we'll let Rob go first. Rob, what do you have? All right. Well, uh, I don't know. Did we even get into? Well, we're going to talk about art. Uh, that's that's the the topic of today's show. Some of did, all did of our you not hear artists. the whole intro I did. I don't listen when you talk. We know that by now. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I got. Oh, it was so much fun last week having you not here. Uh, so anyway, uh, one of the artists that I'm going to be talking about is Walt Simonson. Everybody loves Walt Simonson. So yeah. So I picked, of course, a book that he worked on, and in this case, it is Manhunt. The special edition trade paperback, which collects all the Manhunter stories that he did with Archie Goodman from the back of Detective Comics. Uh, it's only 94 pages, very slim volume, but that means uh, in stock trade price is only $5.44, which is 45% off the normal price of $9.95. So this collects the entire storyline, brief as it was. And uh, it features amazing art by Walt Simonson. This said Goodwin and Simonson were a great team, and the Manhunter stories were really, really fun. So this is a nice, slim little book, and you can pick it up for Insect Trades for not even $6. So pick it up. It's in my hands right now. Uh, it's got a fun, shiny gold foil cover, and it's uh, got the silent issue in the back that they did from Archie's Plot. It would, make, it would make a great movie. It would make a really great movie. It's a wonderfully self-contained story, and I love the character design that Simon's did for this character. This is just – he is one of the most crazy costumed of all the DC characters, and that's saying something. So, yeah. And it works anyway. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'll go, and then we'll let our guest bring us home on that. Here we go. So, folks, I am going to be talking about Art Adams, who's one of my favorite comic book artists. And I, like Rob, I picked something that he worked on, specifically New Mutants Classic Trade Paperback Volume 5. And this collects two Art Adams issues. It collects both the New Mutants Special Edition which I'll be talking about today, and Uncanny X-Men Annual Number 9. Both were part of this great Asgard story that Art, Art Adams had drawn, or I'm sorry, Arthur Adams, I should say, uh, drew. So uh, the writer on this trade paper is Chris Claremont. Again, I mentioned Arthur Adams' artwork. You get Mary Wilshire, you get Rick Leonardi, Keith Pollard, Jackson Geist, because there's a whole bunch of other issues as well. You also get New Mutants number 35 through 40. This is when the New Mutants were firing on all thrusters. You know, uh, it's, it's fantastic stuff. Some of my favorite New Mutant comics. Uh, 280 page count, full color, normally goes for $29.99. Right now in in-stock trades, um, it's 42% off, so you can get it for $17.39. And let me tell you, folks, it's worth it just for the two Arthur Adams comics. What you got, Zoom? Well, uh, my artist, one of the artists that I picked is the criminally underappreciated comic book stalwart Dick Dillon. Yeah. So my selection is the Showcase Presents Justice League of America Trade Paperback Volume 6. This is 528 action-packed pages from stories of the 70s where the Justice League faces foes that include Felix Faust, the Shaggy Man, Eclipso, Amazo, both the Injustice Gang and the Injustice Society, just not at the same time, the Queen Bee, <laughs> and, of course, the dastardly villainy of Carrie Bates. That's right, Carrie Bates, in a story that cemented the foundation behind the rationale of the Superboy Punch device from Infinite Crisis that's loved by comic book fans nowhere. <laughs> Do I know how to sell this or what? Um, <laughs> anyway... Normal retail price is $19.99, but in stocks trade price is $10.99. That's a whopping 45% off, which is what you should expect from in stock trades. Fantastic. Great, great suggestion. Well, folks, again, for all your trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Feel free to go up to their Contact Us button and tell them that the Fire and Water podcast sent you. Absolutely. And we also have another sponsor that we want to talk about, and that is The Only Living Boy from Paper Cuts. Uh, I'll read our little uh, intro here. He says, get ready for the high adventure with uh, the new children's adventure series, The Only Living Boy. 
Harvey Award winners David Gallagher and Steve Ellis critically acclaimed web series to print is now a riveting graphic novel exclusively from paper cuts. When Eric runs away from home, he finds himself lost without his memory on a patchwork planet under a broken moon. He may be the only living boy, but he's not alone. The world is filled with dangerous creatures fighting to decide who is the hunter and who is the hunted. He'll need help from mermaid warrior Morgan and Thea, an insect princess, to escape the foes pitted against them by the dreaded Lord Balakar and the fiendish Dr. Once. Can Eric defeat their evil plans and find his way home? Mental Floss calls the only living boy an all-ages adventure book inspired by pulp serials, Saturday morning cartoons, Jack Kirby, and even the music of Paul Simon. The Only Living Boy Volume 1, Prisoner of the Patrick Planet, is on sale in bookstores everywhere on March 8th. Learn more at olbcomic.com, and we thank them for their support. And it's a fun book. Since we're talking about artists, it's worth saying the art in that book is fantastic. Wonderful. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. You guys got to check it out. Well worth your time. Yep. All right. Well, um, I'm actually going to do something I, I don't usually do. I'm going to kind of stay quiet a little bit here because I have two very impressive artists here on, on, the, on the panel today. So, Rob, I, am I right in saying you're leading us off? Is that right? Uh, no, that's going to be Zoom. <laughs> right, Zoom, as I was Since saying. Zoom is our <laughs> guest. We are going to let Zoom go first. We're good, for, Zoom is going to get the first and last words on this show. Wow. Well, you're both very you're both very kind. First, for calling me an artist, but um, also oh, doing Zoom, that for me. Thank you. Zoom, come on now, <laughs> don't be false modest. Come on, man. Jeez. Well, you know, I, 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 my introduction would be from the creator who brought you the rocky hillside on page fourteen of chapter two hundred and thirty-seven of the Armored Marshals, and the fire hydrant on page twenty-three of chapter sixty-two of the Twilight Thief of Hong Kong. I mean, that's that was basically my published work. I was a background artist in a Hong Kong manhwa studio. Okay, so you were published in. Uh, now you, I, I say manga. You said what word did you say? It's manhwa. That's the. Uh, that's the Hong Kong action kung fu comics. Oh, very cool. So when when was that? Until you're a background artist, when was that published? Uh, that would have been in the uh, 1989 to 1991. Very cool. Now, of course, your next uh, published work is going to be the upcoming Kickstarter volume of Zoom's Who's Who, I believe, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, Zoom's Who, yes. If we could legally get that going, of course. <laughs> Well, tell us, uh, what artist are you going to lead us through, uh, going to talk to you? Yes, of course. Well, as I mentioned in my in-stock trades um, recommendation, the, the artist that I wanted to feature was actually my very first American comic book artist that I was exposed to back when I was a young lad of 10, and that was Dick Dillon, and that was in an issue of Justice League of America that I happened to pick up at uh, a 7-Eleven in Texas, but... Um, just to summarize who Dick Dillon is, for those people that would not know, according to an interview in The Amazing World of DC Comics number 11, Dick Dillon had always wanted to draw comics as a child. He was marveled by the comic strips of Prince Valiant and, and Flash Gordon. Uh, so he studied art. Uh, he went to Syracuse University. He eventually started a commercial art career in New York until he landed his first comic book work, for the Buzz Bennett feature of Fiction House's Wings Comics in 1951. And then in 1952, he started working at Quality Comics on some Westerns and Romance comics, but he was, of course, best known for his work there on Blackhawk. And Dylan was on Blackhawk for a very long tenure, even when Quality was bought out by DC Comics in 1956. And eventually, after a number of reimaginings uh, on DC's side, including that pajama-clad superhero Blackhawk, uh, who remembers the listener, right? <laughs> uh, 
DC eventually canceled that Black Hawk title and gave Dick Dillon eventually the penciling chores of Justice League of America, where he still holds the record as the longest-running artist on the longest-running superhero team book in the history of comics. And this, of course, dovetails into one of the reasons I admire this artist. He was an iron-handed workhorse. Dylan had a virtual uninterrupted 12-year tenure on Justice League of America from issue number 64 to 183. The only exceptions were four reprint issues, and then issue 153, which was drawn by George Tusca, and then maybe, I guess you could count issue 157, where Juan Ortiz drew the majority of the issue and Dylan just drew the framing sequences, where the Atom reveals his secret identity to Gene Loring at the beginning of the issue, and then, of course, the Ray and Gene wedding ceremony at the end. Thank God that but worked these... out well. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, now, also, to be fair to Dick, he didn't give up on Justice League after 12 years. I mean, the man passed away. So who knows That's how right. much longer he that, would have gone. Yes, he literally was drawing comic books for the rest of his life. He, he penciled a few pages of issue 184 uh, before he died of a heart attack on March 1st of 1980. That's correct. He was 50 as well. Uh, I'm, 50, I'm 52, so uh, I got to... Yeah, it's a little, it's a little scary when, when you, when you kind of outlive your heroes, you know. Mm. But you know, going back to those fill-in issues, that was during the giant era of Justice League. You know, where the page count increased, but the production schedules were still the same. So you know, I really don't blame him for having a fill-in or at least a partial fill-in on the, in, during that time. And of course, while Dylan was working on Justice League, he still somehow managed to illustrate a number of issues of World's Finest, backup stories for Green Lantern and The Flash, and for the Atom and Green Arrow in Action Comics, as well as various other side projects. That strange sports stories, uh, baseball game with the superheroes versus the supervillains, for example. Oh, and let's not forget that Aquaman solo story in DC Special's uh, five-star superhero spectacular. That's right. <laughs> and uh, the, the saga of the Super Sons. Oh, I, yes. I know, I know you mentioned yes, World's Finest, but I just want to specifically shout them out. Yes, indeed, indeed. The other thing I like about him is, is his style and storytelling is very, very solid. Uh, it's not flashy or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Stylish, gimmicky. Well, you know, it, 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 it's not basic. I mean, there's a, there's a dynamism to his drawings. Um, although the comic book medium is essentially a series of still images, Dylan's figures are always fluid. They always look like they're moving, even without the use of motion lines. And, of course, Dylan was one of those artists that can use a lot of motion lines and use them very well. Um, and of course, his heroic characters look like heroes, the villains always look devious, and the women are gorgeous. Dylan's Wonder Woman was the first Wonder Woman I ever saw in a comic book. Before that, it was Super Friends, and she looked very much like her Super Friends counterpart, except she was more lovely, and she actually appeared more muscular, yet still seemed feminine. But going back to the storytelling, that's the important thing that I like about a comic book artist, and his page and panel layouts clearly define action. Um, there's a strong storytelling, and of course there's the energy. I mean, take his battle scenes, for example. Okay, well, I'll admit, a lot of Dylan's crowd fights in Justice League of America, they look like a bunch of characters that are kind of haphazardly thrown together in a panel. I mean, if you look at what George Perez or Jose Luis Garcia Lopez... Praise be his name. name. <laughs> you, you passed the test, sir. 
Thank you. Anyway, the, the, the battle scenes that they did like in New Teen Titans, they're very well choreographed. Um, but believe me when I say as someone who has been in a scrapper six in his lifetime, the gang fights are never beautifully choreographed <laughs> in real life like that. So Dylan's fight scenes, they have that touch of chaotic realism and energy. And, and amidst all the chaos, the storytelling of the composition, it's still very easy to follow. I, I, he's just quite the stalwart. It's amazing. Even on one-on-one -on -one battles, I mean, there's this one panel in Justice League of America 143 where, where Wonder Woman just swoops out of the sky and clocks the privateer. And, and there's just a raw realism to it. It's not a very dynamic shot, but it looks like something like if it was, a, if it was in a movie, it was, if it was a still frame in a movie, that's how it would look. So I was just impressed by it. Um, and of course, he he does these great silent panels. Um, there's a scene in Justice League of America number 155. Uh, that's the story where a second moon appears and starts creating disasters on Earth. A surprise red tornado is being rescued by Batman, who says something along the lines of how Justice Leaguers do not desert their friends, which leads the tornado to ask him, am I your friend? And the next panel, Batman and the tornado are grasping hands and smiling. It was very, very powerful. And I just they're realized... Skipping, they're skipping through a field, there's flowers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I suppose we should post a scan of this page on your new website because I have the feeling my description is now being misinterpreted. <laughs> I think it's best left to people's imagination. So. I suppose so. I, I suppose mean, you started so. off by saying, you know, Red Tornado is being rescued by Batman. I mean, that right there summed up Red Tornado's, you know, history of the JLA right away. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. If he's not being rescued, he's being destroyed. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll interject so those, really quickly. I, I'm, I go hope right ahead. Off your flow. My, my first Justice League comic I ever read was Justice League number 171, which is the, uh, the death of uh, Mr. Terrific and is yes, illustrated yes. by Dick Dillon. And it was also my first exposure to Earth 2. And I, I remember my, my brain was just like, what am I looking at? Because, you know, there's this great – there's several uh, great gang shots of the Justice League and Justice Society intermingled. And yet, even though there's a lot of characters on the page, and I was all of uh, – what, what year did this come out? This came out in um, 1979, so I was, you know, uh, seven years old. I still understood where, what all the characters were doing. I understood their interactions. I was able to follow the Green Lantern hand that went all the way, kooky all the way around the room, picking up sandwiches or something off the snack tray. It, it all made that crystal clear. Yeah, I mean, it all made crystal clear sense to me. As a seven-year-old, his, his command of storytelling was amazing, no matter how many characters he was dealing with. That's right, and he would give each character a chance to shine, too. He, you know, he would give it special attention, so nobody was really lost in the background. Zoom, do you have a particular favorite anchor of Dylan's? I mean, Frank McLaughlin is really the one that had the longest tenure with him, but there were other anchors. Do you have one that you liked more, that you thought brought out the best in, in what Dylan was doing? You know, Frank McLaughlin, I think, was was the anchor I'm most familiar with. I, I do like Dick Giordano, but of course Dick Giordano makes everybody look good. Yeah, uh, yeah. true that. It, it, he, he really cleans it up a bit, and, and he doesn't overpower um, what Dick Dillon is doing with, with his pencils, unlike, say, a Sid Green would do. Mm -hmm. I don't think Vince Coletta ever inked Dick Dillon. Hopefully oh. not. Oh, God. Yeah, right, thankfully. 
that pretty much sums up my thoughts about Dick Dillon, just to keep it brief. Uh, but if you want to have a little interesting fact, you know, uh, Dillon's unfinished issue of Justice League that we were talking about, it was completely redrawn by George Perez. Mm -hmm. And I found that interesting because I found out uh, through another issue of The Amazing World of DC Comics that Dick Dillon himself actually did the same for another artist, John Rosenberger, who, as we all well know, is the co-creator of... Lady Cop! <laughs> That's right. <laughs> did not see that coming. As soon as Zoom said the name, I oh, he's Lady Cop. <laughs> yes, Ro oh Rosenberger unfortunately died from an illness after he penciled the first few pages of Wonder Woman number 217. That was one of the Justice League trials issues, where which co-starred Green Arrow. And Dylan subsequently redrew the entire story. Um, wow. Though this may have been more the policy of DC Comics at the time. The Amazing World of DC Comics number 15 actually publishes the penciled pages of, of Rosenberger. That's how I was able to find this out. How did Dylan ever have the time to do so much work? I, I, mean, I, I can't imagine what his daily was, schedule must have been like. He was an iron-handed workhorse. Now, granted, this was during the time when most DC comics were published only eight times a year as opposed to monthly, but, you know, it switched to a monthly schedule, and he was still at it. It was amazing. And he drew the full JLA when they did the... when they There was that brief run where they bumped up to like 36 page stories he drew all of it then yes, too. yes yeah that was wow. the giant era i was talking about and that yeah. in fact those were the those were the only that was the only time where there were those two fill-in issues the 153 and the 157 those were both giant issues yeah yeah it's amazing i i, I always you know obviously yeah. it was sad that that he passed away but i always thought it was really sad that he that he passed away when he did because he was he just missed the real beginnings of comics fandom I mean, comics fandom was a thing in the 70s, but I think it really took off in terms of the organized conventions in the 80s. And I think he probably would have been very beloved, uh, a figure, oh, you know, so. but he just he died in 19, literally 1980. And it just no one really ever got it. I would have I mean, it would have been amazing to go and see him at a convention. I got to I got to meet uh, Frank McLaughlin and that was wonderful. And just because Dylan, uh, Dylan and McLaughlin are like to me, like the Lennon and McCartney of DC Comics. They're just such a pair. And. <laughs> You know, it would have been amazing to, to get him to – and it's, it's a shame that he's not, of course, involved in JLA number 200 because yeah. he should have yes. been. Yes, he absolutely you know? should have been. Yeah. And, you know, Zoom, you were searching for words to describe him earlier. You're right. He's, he's not flashy, but he's uh, – uh, no, I hate to say traditional, but he's, he's so, maybe solid. I mean everything he draws is solid. You don't look at much that he drew and go, nah. It's, it's – it, it covers the work that it's supposed to cover. The characters are on model, and it's exciting to read. The style doesn't That's call right. attention to itself uh, yeah. that much, right, uh, unlike right. some other it's artists. Where, where they, they focus more on the style to the detriment of the storytelling. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, right, and you can see that that sort of slowly creeped in the comics to the point in the 90s where it just became nothing but style. You know, I mean, no basic drawing, just nothing but <laughs> craziness, but, you know. Uh, yeah, it, it, it also, again, it would have been interesting to see how long Dylan would have lasted into the JLA's tenure if he had kept going. You know, I mean, at what point would DC maybe have wanted to change him out for somebody? I'm sure they were sorry that they lost Dick Dylan, but I'm sure they were thrilled that their replacement was George Perez. Right. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. everybody's Oh, indeed, favorite. indeed. Well, my understanding was that George Perez, um, was approached by DC to create the Teen Titans, the new Teen Titans revival. And um, he only agreed to do it if he was able to do some issues of, of Justice League. Wow. And then 
and then uh, and then Dick Dillon died. Wow. So it it, it wasn't like DC was going to show Dick Dillon the door. I think they were going to they I think they were going to allow George Perez to probably do a fill-in issue or 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 two or something as he was as he was building the Titans. And of course, you know, the Titans took off. I'll get to that later when I talk about my second artist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue. Gee, I wonder who uh, that would be. Yeah. I'm going to talk about Art Adams, or as I as I seem to come across everything, I guess he goes by Arthur Adams nowadays. I, I seem to always call him Art Adams, but everything seems to say Arthur Adams nowadays. So I apologize to Mr. Adams if, if he doesn't like the affectation of art. Anyway, um... If you're not familiar with Art Adams, or Arthur Adams, shame on you. He, he's an amazing artist and probably best known for his highly distinctive and very detailed artwork. I mean, lots of little fine lines, lots and lots of, of details. Um, you might know him. Like, I'll give you some examples. I mean, he's really well known for his work on the X-Men franchise, Godzilla, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Gumby, Danger Girl, Excalibur, Vampire. I'm not going to name everything he's ever done. I'm just naming some big stuff he's worked on. Excalibur, Vampirella, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Rocketeer, The Authority, Hulk. That's just a few of the things. Then he went on to uh, create his own, creator-owned series, uh, which he wrote and drew, called Monkey Man and O'Brien in 1993 for Dark Horse Comics. So just to give you some of the body of work, so hopefully some bells are going off going, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Now, interestingly, I'm doing some research on him. I have the wonderful, wonderful... Tomorrow's Press Modern Masters, Volume 6, Arthur Adams, which I highly recommend you pick up. It's a gorgeous book. It's got all kinds of ranges of artwork from his his, um, his time with Marvel and some of his DC stuff. And, I mean, there's some just uh, convention pinups. Like, there's this totally badass Micronauts page he did in here. It's gorgeous. Anyway, I love his work. He, he is astonishingly a self-taught artist. Really? He, yeah, can you believe this? And he started. That makes me depressed. <laughs> I, well, <laughs> and well, to make it even worse, uh, around age nineteen is when he made the jump from making pizzas to long shot for Marvel Comics. Wow! I mean, the guy just exploded on the scene. From, he he co-created Long Shot with Anna Senti, by the way. I'm sure you've heard of Long Shot. So that was 1985 for Marvel. That was really his first gig. And if you if you read Long Shot now, which is available by the way on the Marvel Unlimited app, and I was flipping through it just the other day. It's a uh, you could it's a little rough. It's 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 his beginnings. Uh, for me, he really really clicked with the New Mutants special number one, and that's the one I'm going to talk about a little bit in a minute. But you can kind of see some of his influences. He cites two major influences of his was Michael Golden, which you know is, is a gorgeous artist from the '70s, also known for a lot of uh, detail work, and Walt Simonson, who's also known for a lot of. Uh, not necessarily detail work, but a, a lot of powerful, dynamic sort of imagery going on. And I think we might hear a little more about Walt coming up. A little bit. So maybe. So um, for me personally, though, it is, it is definitely the New Mutants work that, that is my favorite with, with art, uh, specifically the character of Warlock. Now, I have to put this question to you. Do you have either of you guys read his stuff on New Mutants? I don't think I have, no. Really? Zoom? I've seen a little bit of it, but no, I have not been a regular reader. But I do know what you're talking about when it comes to Warlock. Yes. Uh, War Warlock is a shape-changing alien um, who can turn himself in any techno-organic thing that he wants, any sort of shape and design, which is perfect because one of the nice things about Art Adams is he has a real sense of fun. Whenever you look at his artwork, even though it's highly detailed, it, there's always a, a fun and energy to it. It's in... One of the things that, as I was reading through his book, that he's really spent a lot of time focusing on that really impresses me is that with so many lines, you can really lose the focus of where the panel 
is supposed to be, what you're supposed to be looking at. And sometimes it's difficult, especially more so in his earlier work. And, and there the colorist kind of had to help him along by maybe making some of the background detail work solid color and the foreground characters are, you know, multicolored. But he really does, as, as time goes by, you really see that he has learned to, uh, very consciously so, how to make sure that you keep the focus of the panel properly. You can add as much detail work as you in as you want, but using your storytelling to make sure that the focus of the panel and the direction and, and the storytelling you're trying to say never gets lost. And uh, I, I'm very impressed with that. Now, because of the nature of his really, really tight pencils, uh, which are apparently very labor-intensive, he really can't function as a monthly artist. He, can, he, can do, he does lots of miniseries. He does lots of covers. Uh, a lot of those books I rattled off were miniseries, or um, he focused on doing just some pages, or maybe he did a miniseries or a one-shot or whatever. So uh, it, people, I, I think nowadays, and I might be wrong on this, I think people nowadays mostly associate him with Godzilla, um, because that seems to be what he's always, always doing for Dark Horse. And he does do a fantastic-looking Godzilla. He loves but the monsters. He clearly he, loves the open. But to that, and you mentioned the creature of the Black Lagoon. Yep. That's one. Of, that's my favorite work of his. Is the creature because he just he loves that character so much. He does. He absolutely does. You know his Gumby comic. He won uh, some awards for. Believe it or not. <laughs> so incredible. So all right, I want to take a second to talk about New Mutant Special Number One. I bought this. I don't know if I bought it off the rack in '85 or I got it shortly afterwards. It must have been probably shortly afterwards because I went through a mutants phase. It was a little bit after that one. So, anyway, came out in 1985. Absolutely stunning comic, guys. Two-page cover. Um, again, finely detailed. Warlock dead square in the front. Hang on, I'm going to bring it up on my tablet so I can look at it here. Um, and, and it's available on the Marvel Digital Unlimited app, by the way. So if you have Marvel Unlimited, and I know I've talked to you guys about this many, many times, if you don't have it, go out and get Marvel Unlimited. It will change God, your life. Is there some sort of kickback thing going on with you? In no, it's thing? not. It is yeah, just is a, this a new sponsor? <laughs> no, it, gosh, I wish it was. It is one of the greatest things, and I'm so pissed at DC Comics for not having this. But that's a discussion for another day. So, anyway, gorgeous cover. Um, you've got Warlock Dead Square in the, in the front just beating the tar out of these Norse creatures. And in the background, you've got this beautiful imagery of Loki and uh, Enchantress and Storm, who are sort of part of the focal point of the story. Uh, anyway, I, 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 here's the problem. I'm on here with two artists, and I'm more of a guy who I like me some pretty pictures. So I'm not going to describe things as eloquently as they will. I'm just going to try and run through some stuff that's fun here. Um, let's see. I uh, looking at my notes as well here. Uh, okay, I'll put this out there. He's really good at drawing hot women, um, and there are several hot women in the New Mutant special. However, excuse me, Shag, begging your pardon if I may interject, but to help clarify for the listeners who cannot see uh, everything that you're talking about here on the on the panel, mm -hmm. and especially those who are still waiting for you to post that Fury of Firestorm number ten panel of Doreen Day in her sheer nightgown up on that Tumblr, you know? Wow. <laughs> when you say when you say hot, do you mean like Taylor Dane hot or Samantha Fox hot? <laughs> um, hmm. Could we go? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to touch that because here's why. Here's why I'm not going to touch that. Same reason for the Doreen Day thing. These are technically teenagers. So I'm going to sort of step carefully around it and just say there's hot women in here. Go find them and you can decide which one are hot and which one are not. So. And I, I will just put it out there. When I was under 18, I had a huge crush on Ilyana. You know, so whatever. So anyway. was Ilyana like Elizabeth Montgomery hot or Barbara Eden hot? <laughs> <laughs> 
She was like 16, dude. Again, I can't touch that. Well, I'm, not I'm going picturing to. this giant bracket system that Zoom has in his house, and it's all these different things and these women, and eventually it just comes down to like I guess Samantha Fox, right? The ultimate winner, Zoom. Is that the case? I well, hold on. Now he he brought up two of my particular favorite ladies from my youth, Barbara Eden, and uh, and uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Montgomery. Montgomery. I was desperately in love with both of those women, probably for different reasons, I suppose. But um, anyway, uh, thanks for the little side trip in my head. We really though. derailed this segment, haven't we? Again, teenagers. So I'm not going to answer any of those questions. Moving on. Anyway, uh, both this issue, New Mutant Special number one, and uh, X Men Annual number nine, it's a continuing story, and it's all about Asgard. So Asgard is full of you know nice little intricate flourishes and things like that it really gave Adams a chance to really draw lots of fine detail in the background and I mean it must have took this guy forever to draw this thing because there's so many minute little details that are just in the background and if and one of the nice things on the digital thing is I zoom in quite a bit and um, no, no pun intended I zoom in on panels <laughs> and really get a nice look at some of the detail work in the background and it's just stunning he, he throws lots of little funny bits in there. Like there's a bit where there's these frost giants storming through uh, uh, an area of Asgard. And he draws one of them straight up as Ed Grimley. Remember Ed Grimley, the Martin Short character? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of them's Ed Grimley. No, no two bones about it. The other one I'm pretty sure is supposed to be a Fred Flintstone character. But it's, uh, it's, it's just nuts how he does this. In the, the X-Men follow-up, he actually has Warlock, who can transform into any sheep, shape, fly in, zooming in, flying in, saving the day in the shape of the Starship Enterprise. Um, he just has a lot of fun with these characters. And I would say, as you're going through this thing, pretty much any panel that features Warlock... Uh, Ilyana or Darkchild, um, because they are actually separate entities in this comic, or Magma, all of them look phenomenal. Uh, Warlock, because of the black design with the alternating uh, highlights of, of, of uh, bright, like white, it's like it's all black with highlight white lights and lines and stuff, and constantly changing the shapes. It's gorgeous. Uh, the, the movement of Warlock, the design, the goofiness of him is beautiful. Ilyana is gorgeous and sexy, and Dark Child is incredibly detailed and dangerous-looking and frightening-looking. Magma is the, the flames coming off her. She's turned into, like, a fairy fire creature in this one. She's stunning. She just takes complete command of the page when she's on there. Um, I've got some page numbers, but they're probably irrelevant because my, my version doesn't have a page number, so I'm just kind of guessing words. But, like, a, yeah, if you happen to have the comic, go to page probably 54. I can't promise again because I'm looking at it digitally, and they don't have the page numbers. But on this page, you get a great shot. It's got Warlock. It's got Dark Child. It's got uh, Karma, who is at this point looking super hot. And it just – it. It, is a, it gives you a, a good demonstration of what this man can draw. You get Warlock at the top. He's pointing, and his mouth is open. You can actually see an exclamation point in his mouth because he's in shock. His fingertip has a little tiny face on it, and the little tiny face in his finger, fingertip is actually saying, Scream. And then you get Darkchild, who's got this army of Norse creatures behind her, but she's the only one in full color. So even though they're incredibly detailed, she's the one that stands out. She's the one that you can see the, the chinks in her armor. You can see the blade, the mace. Uh, her red tail. Then as you go down, you see Karma, who's wearing a very sexy sort of 80s-style outfit. It's basically a dress that she's had to shred to survive in the desert, but it shows off all the right curves. And then Warlock at the end turns himself into sort of a Gundam-type mech suit. And um, it's just... It's a great page that demonstrates how wonderful Art Adams is and his artistic styling, and uh, it's just beautiful. Now, if I had to point out any flaws, he does seem to have trouble drawing Wolfsbane. 
Uh, I'm not really quite sure why. Maybe it's the animalistic aspect of it. Because he draws humans fine, but they, maybe it's the animal. Or maybe it's just that, you know, she had that weird mid-form, which was like half-human, half-wolf. Those are the scenes that don't quite work. Maybe that's just the, the nature of it. But overall, absolutely art, uh, gorgeous artwork. And um, again, lots of Easter eggs. Like in the, in the long shot miniseries, uh, I, I didn't even know this until I was flipping through the Modern Masters book. There is a page with this Norse ship flying across the sky, and in the front, you know, they have a, a woman normally carved on the front of the ship. Well, here it's a demon, and in this printed book, it's a demon with some weird designs and stuff. But in the original pencils in the Modern Masters, oh yeah, he drew Blue Devil <laughs> in long shot. Blue Devil is on the front of this ship, and then for the printed version, an, an inker went back and changed him enough so that you didn't quite recognize it was Blue Devil. So, lots of fun stuff. Amazing artist. Go look up some of his stuff. We'll put some of the pages up on fireandwaterpodcast.com and, uh, and what we call the gallery posts. And uh, it's just beautiful. Yeah, I, I always found his art to be very beautiful. And, and it had kind of like that old style engraving um, texture mm-hmm. with it with all the hatching and the cross hatching. Um, and, and it was very interesting to see that kind of style in, his, in the series uh, Johnny Future which was very yeah. much, um, you know, a futuristic tale, but had kind of like this old-style engraving um, art, art, um, artwork to it. I thought it was just a brilliant juxtaposition myself. Yeah, there's, there, Go ahead, Rob. Oh, I'm saying he, just, he drew a great uh, Action Comics annual that I think uh, Chris and Cindy Franklin talked about on their Supermates podcast, the Superman-Batman team-up, where they run into some vampires, and he drew that, and he did a really great job on that story. And, and there's no one that looked like him at the time. You know, he when he burst onto the scene, I mean, he just uh, – you saw his stuff and you got stopped in your tracks. And he's still doing a lot of covers. So you'll still see his stuff on the shelves nowadays. So, Well, I'm glad you guys enjoy his work too. He's one of my favorites. It's like whenever I you – know, it's almost like a comfort food, you know, like mac and cheese when you're not feeling well. Uh, picking up the, this, these two new, new, these new mutants story followed by the X-Men story, it's just like the perfect comfort food for me. Because it's also from my 80s wheelhouse of uh, X-Men stuff that I love so much. It's a very Marvel style, very dynamic. Yeah, yeah. He didn't do a lot of DC. He did some, but no. not a lot. Yeah, so. yeah. All right, Rob, who do you want to cover? Well, uh, as uh, we talked about, I, um, my first uh, choice is going to be Walt Simonson. Everybody Woo! loves Walt Simonson. I don't know anybody who doesn't like Walt Simonson's work, and I don't know anybody who doesn't love Walt Simonson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we know that uh, Louise Simonson certainly does, uh, but uh, lots of other people do. He's like one of the great, you know, kind of like nice guys of the industry, and his style, I've always loved it brief, brief history of his career. He basically got into comics in the early 70s along with his pals Howard Chaikin, Michael Kaluna, Bernie Wrightson, Alan Weiss. I mean, that's a hell of a group. And he got work at DC early on doing backup features back when DC Comics used to do that stuff. His first uh, story is in Weird War Tales number 10. Uh, yeah, and um, he then went on to do Manhunter, of course, for DC. He did Metal Man, Hercules, Unbound. He, his style seemed to, came, seemed to come almost fully formed. I mean, if you go back and look at his early work, it's rougher than what you're used to now, but it's basically the work you're familiar with. Uh, he really seemed to kind of come just completely ready to do comics. Um, now, my first encounter with him was actually not on a, a, a regular comic, but on a magazine, the Marvel magazine, The Rampaging Hulk. Uh, he drew the first couple issues of that series, which I love. And he was inked by Alfredo Acala. So, and as anybody knows of Alfredo Acala, he's a very heavy anchor. So you, it was, you don't necessarily recognize that it's Simonson, but if you kind of go back and realize, oh yeah, you can see the figure drawing in terms of his sort of squat figures and he did some tremendous work on that magazine. I used to love the Rampaging Hulk magazine. Uh, that was just such a great thing. 
He did some stuff. Uh, he did Battlestar Galactica. He, of course, yes, he did. Uh, he he was the one who drew the X Men Teen Titans crossover book, oh, so which was an amazing right, yes, book. That, yeah, yeah, that's the second book of of Simonson's that I that I purchased myself. Yeah, it breaks my heart that they never did that as a Treasury edition. That they oh, just did it as a regular that would be because he really got into it. I mean, he did these large scale vistas of these. You know, it was just it's a beautiful book. Now, the the specific comic that I'm going to mention. In terms of the, to me, is one of the great examples of his work is, of course, his first issue on Thor, which was number three thirty-seven, which features a cover of Beta Ray Bill. We didn't know who this was, but as we know later on, Beta Ray Bill smashing the Thor logo. Not only actually just smashing the logo, but smashing everything about the cover. He's smashing the the cover corner symbol, the the the, the price, the everything, and it really is you know a very metaphorical cover because this is Walt Simonson taking over the book and just completely redoing Thor. And, you know, in an age of reboots where we are constantly rebooting series, in fact, we're just, according to DC, doing it all over again in a couple of months. I mean, this was Simonson, you know, giving Thor a fresh coat of paint, but not not getting rid of anything that had come before. He just freshened it up. Uh, he gave it a real, I mean, if you go back again, we'll, we'll post some of these pages on our gallery section on the fireandwaterpodcast.com site. But I mean, this first issue that he did of Thor is just wonderful. And, and Simonson really can seemingly draw anything. He's good at drawing techno stuff, you know, ships. He's good at drawing aliens. He can do kind of comedy figures. I mean, later on in this Thor run that, uh, that he did, he turned Thor into Thunderfrog. So, I mean, he could kind of handle comedy. That, Beta was, that was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, Beta Ray Bill is a really fearsome creature that he draws, this kind of horse-like guy. And the big shock of the, the way this ends his issue is after he defeats Thor, he picks up uh, the thick – he picks up the, the stick, which turns into millionaire, and Beta Ray Bill picks it up. And at the end of the story, uh, he is carted away by Odin, who calls him his son, and this issue ends with Donald Blake – left all by himself, powerless, just screaming for his father. And I remember buying this issue off the stands. I was never that big of a Thor fan. I think I liked the, the, the character more than I liked the comic. But I bought this, and I remember just thinking, whoa, what is this? I mean, it just had so many interesting ideas put across. Simonson is just, you feel like he had all this stuff built up in his mind of what he wanted to do, and he just hit the ground running. And he ended up drawing Thor for 20 issues straight, it is one of the great Thor runs of all time. I don't think anybody really – that's a, much of a controversial statement. No, um, uh, Yeah, and this uh, – a lot of uh, Simonson's work was paired up with letterer um, John Workman who brought a real beauty and sort of like almost movie-style uh, theatricality to the lettering. And these two made a great team. I mean it, it, Workman's lettering is really sort of – interesting and, and idiosyncratic and so was Simonson's work and uh, it really just this it was the Thor run that cemented my love of this guy's work and uh, he later went on to you know he did a long career he did a lot of self-published self-published stuff he did a run on Fantastic Four he did X Factor he did he wrote some Wonder Woman uh, I mean he's done a lot of stuff he did the um, Demon and Catwoman serial in Wednesday Comics which I really enjoyed seeing his work at, at that large of a size. He did some covers for a Batlash miniseries. I mean, he's, he's had one of the great careers in comics. Uh, and he still is around, of course. He still does lots of great stuff. But it's this Thor run is just, to me, amazing. It holds up really well. It's fun. It's extra, like you were, Shag, you were talking about with Art Adams. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinarily fun. 
It feels yeah. like a Ray Harryhausen kind of thing. I know I compare a lot of things to Ray Harryhausen because I mean that as a compliment because it's Ray Harryhausen. But it just has that big, you know, Thor's taking on monsters and fire gods and frost giants and all sorts of just fun stuff. And he just, it is so beautiful to look at. And uh, Simonson has said, I've gone back and found some of his older series. I mentioned The Metal Men and uh, Hercules Unbound. That stuff is really great. Uh, his Star Slammers graphic novel that he did for Marvel. I mean, I can't think of a single story I've ever seen Walt Simonson draw that I haven't in- enjoyed. I, I literally can't think of one. And except for the Afraid of Wakala stuff on Rampage and he inks himself almost all the time. And it just, it has such a completeness to it. And uh, I love it. I love Walt Simonson. I think he's just such a great artist. And uh, so anybody should take a look at the Thor run. I said, specifically Thor 37 is where it kicks off. It's an amazing, amazing comic book. Yes, I, I, I like his art. I'm not like an avid follower. Like I'm definitely going to buy everything that he draws, uh, I have to admit. Uh, the first uh, comic that I bought that had uh, Walt Simonson's art is actually the first issue special with Dr. Fate, which you've talked Ooh. about. Oh, before. God, I forgot to mention that one, too. Oh, oh don't worry. I was getting to it. Okay. <laughs> and that was just, um, that's just brilliant, the way that uh, that they they put in the Egyptian iconography and, and just, the, uh, just the flow of uh, the magic effects in there was unlike anything I've ever seen before. And I actually, I don't, I don't think I've actually seen it again when it came to Dr. Fate anyway. Um, not as expertly. They've tried, but not as but, expertly. Right, right. And the other thing that, uh, that I guess I, I could say about his art is that it has a, a bit of a, a, a grittiness to it, but it's not like the Frank Miller grit where all you see is grit. It just, it just adds that little... Um, it just adds that little extra uh, imperfection to something that would be otherwise polished. So it just kind of grounds the art yeah. somehow. Hopefully I'm making mean. sense. Sometimes no, I you, can't you are. fully... I'll, I'll, I'll throw an example to sort of back up what you're saying. An artist that always reminded me of Walt Simonson was Bill Watterson. And they both have a love of dinosaurs. And yes. look at Bill Watterson's art on Calvin versus his art on the dinosaurs. There's a sort of, like you said, it, it's like a gritty down-to-earthishness. And Simonson has that same feel in a lot of his work as well. Maybe that comparison's lost on everyone else. It makes sense to me. And Simonson's uh, signature is a dinosaur, too. So. That's right. <laughs> his famous dinosaur signature, yeah. It's got a real impish quality, despite the fact that he's dealing with a lot of people with swords and cutting their heads off. You know what I mean? It's, it's, he deals with a lot of violence. Of course, being a superhero artist, you have to. But there's a kind of just spirit to it that is really quite... Uh, to me, just just fun and fanciful, and like I said, and he was good at humor. You know, he was, and and there's something about his layouts. I mean, like I said that Doctor Fate issue is is the single greatest Doctor Fate comic ever done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, he did brought that just all the little iconography that he threw in. It's it really is. It's like a complete. I hate to use this word because it's overused, but it's like a complete vision. I, I sort of I feel like Walt Simonson plots a whole story out in his mind with the pencils. And uh, it's sort of in his mind before he ever sets the pencil down of, of where to fit in the iconography, where to make the panels. Re- I mean, he's great at these giant images. He can do tiny panels. I mean, he really he's just a, one of the master storytellers of comics. And, uh, you know, I said I can't think of anything he's ever done that I haven't liked. And I can't believe I forgot that Dr. Fate. That Dr. Fate comic is one of the great one issues of all time. You didn't forget, Rob. You didn't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Zoom, I felt like I stepped in and interrupted you there trying to back you up on uh, his, his green. No, no, please back. No, please back me up. <laughs> 
Uh, so I guess is that it? We done with Walt Simonson? Well, Everything else? No, I was I, I was I was going to gush about Walt. All right, you so, go right ahead. So uh, I first the first time I probably ever saw him was on those Battlestar Galactic comics. I picked up some of those off the shelf, uh, being a, a big fan of the car, of the TV show, and just I, I didn't know why I loved those comics, but I did. And it wasn't until years later that I, I even figured out that was him. You know, he did some amazing Star Wars issues too, as well. Yes, I he think, did. I think, uh, and, and I don't mean to name everything he ever did because we could be here all night, but I think probably one of the best words I would use to describe him is dynamic. Everything is in, you know, John, Jack Kirby was sort of bombastic. Everyone was, you know, exploding and, and moving in the motion, and he just really gave a sense of things moving in motion. Simonson's the same way. You know, like you mentioned the cover to this issue, when Beta Ray Bill's swinging, it's just the, the dynamic pose he's in as he's swinging that hammer, he's just smashing the crap out of it. And yet it's a static figure, but you feel like he's moving. You can feel that movement. The, the different use of the heavy-weighted line versus skinny-weighted line, Simonson's a master of. He's also a, a very good writer. The, I don't know if you ever read his Fantastic Four run, but it's a, there's a fantastic, oh, sorry, fantastic issue where the, it's all time travel. It's it's Reed in a time travel and and Doctor Doom time traveling and they're jumping around and so the comic is actually told out of sequence, but you can read it forward to backward or you can read it straight from the first page to last page or you can go back and look at the timestamps and jump all over the book and the book makes sense that way too. Wow, it's really cleverly done. You mentioned not being a big Thor fan. I can't stand Thor. I don't like Thor at all. I, he drives me nuts. Uh, he bores the crap out of me. He shows up in a comic, and I'm like, oh, here comes the overpowered guy that's not going to save the day. Um, <laughs> however, I happen to own three Thor trade paperbacks, which says a lot, and they're all the Simonson ones um, because they're just that damn good. So uh, oh, I could go on all day. He's so, he, uh, anyway, love the guy. Absolutely love it. So good. Uh, yeah. That's that's well time. So I think we're going to take a break here. We're going to run some promos from our for uh, shows from our friends, and we're going to go back. We're all going to do our second selection. So everybody, stay tuned, and uh, we'll see you in a couple minutes. With his army of evil on the march, Bird Degaton appears to have time on his side. When duty calls, they answer, bringing the fight for freedom to the front lines. They are the mystery men and women known as the Justice Society of America. Hey there, my name is Al Girding, and I have a favor to ask. If you're a fan of the Justice Society of America or other DC Comics Heroes of the Golden Age, please listen to my new podcast, The All-Star Comics Review. Grab your reprints, DC Archive editions, or the original comics if you're lucky enough to own them, and let's explore the adventures of the JSA and other Golden Age greats. Follow along with the All-Star Comics Review podcast, now found on iTunes, allstarcomicsreview.blogspot.com, and Facebook. It's time for some thrilling heroics, a brand new podcast on twotruefreaks.com. Keep flying! A Firefly Podcast. We aim to do the impossible. Cover every episode of Joss Whedon's science fiction space opera western. And that makes us mighty. We've found as fine a crew as ever populated the podcasting verse. I told them I had a job. They said yes. Didn't much care what it was. So join me, Andrew Leyland. I fought for the independence. May have been the losing side. Not so sure it was the wrong one. 
I'm joined by a man too pretty to die, Mr. Paul Spataro. And last, but by no means least, a man with a mighty fine hat, Shepherd Bill Robinson. So join us on TwoTrueFreaks.com for Keep Flying, a Firefly podcast. We aim to misbehave. All right, and we're back, and uh, it's Shag's turn again. Shag, who is your second choice? Well, my, my, my next choice is sort of a, a no-brainer, and I'm not going to talk about it for long because it's, it's sort of like Simon's. We could talk for weeks. It's John Byrne. I absolutely love John Byrne's artwork, especially the peak of his work in the 80s is just some of my favorite stuff. Again, it's sort of comfort food. I mentioned I used that term before. Uh, fantastic stuff. Not going to talk a lot about him because everyone knows who John Byrne is, but just, just to give you an idea how far back he goes. He self-published his own comic in uh, 1971, and then in 1974, he started drawing for Charles and Comics. That's how far back he was drawing. I was two years old when he was drawing comic books. He, uh, you know, he helped make X-Men a household name. I mean, Chris Claremont, who knows? Would he have been as successful without John Byrne by his side? You know, uh, I don't know. Uh, death, you know, from the death of Phoenix to the rebirth of Superman, the guy's done it all. You know, so just to name off some of his significant runs, uh, you know, he's well known for his runs on X-Men, Fantastic Four, Avengers, She-Hulk, Namor, Alpha Flight, Superman, Wonder Woman, and some of his Star Trek work. And, uh, one could argue he's also had significant runs on uh, titles like Spider-Man and Doom Patrol, but those might be better labeled as infamous, but regardless. <laughs> he's gone on to do some of his own creator work with Next Men. Um, he, he, he launched a couple of books called like Babe and Danger Unlimited. Um, but you know, in more recent years, he's been doing, like I said, the Star Trek stuff. He's done a lot of miniseries. He did those Superman and Batman Generations books that are at least the first two volumes, maybe the third, I'm not sure, are beloved by many of the people we hang out with. Uh, I've actually purchased volumes one and two, and they're in my queue to read sometime soon, so I'm looking forward to reading those. Man, go back to that 80s work, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. Reread those X-Men issues, which are on Marvel Digital Unlimited, by the way. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that was a bit of a joke. Uh, which you guys really, you know, laughed at really hard. I really I'm appreciate it. Just, just gonna leave you hanging there, that's all. Yeah, well, I'm feeling my, it. My laughter my laughter was overcome by the sound of the cash register. <laughs> ah, perfect. All right. Well I we really aren't sponsored by them folks. I'm just in love with it. So I'm gonna talk just very briefly about Alpha Flight number one. Alpha Flight number one is uh, a fantastic burn book. He didn't, you know, if you, if you don't know the history on it, he didn't want to do Alpha Flight as an ongoing series. He helped create the characters with Chris Claremont in the X-Men book, but he didn't want to go back to doing another team book. He, he told them he didn't want to do it. Somehow Marvel finally twisted his arm. And uh, just looking at Alpha Flight number one very quickly, the cover is great. It's got this bold yellow. It's got the Alpha Flight characters, which are so quirky looking. They're so unusual and different and don't sort of fit with the rest of the Marvel Universe. I love that they're so weird. They're sort of shoving aside Spider-Man and the X-Men and the Fantastic Four and Avengers and Daredevil, and they're saying, you know, one side, superheroes, this is a job only we can handle. It's a fun, great cover. And Byrne has such a clean line. I mean, I don't know how to describe him artistically, and I, I did a little research here trying to find the way people described him. Nobody really had a, a soundbite to describe his art style uh, other than it's clean and dynamic. I, how would you guys describe his art style? Well, you know, I, I was first exposed to his artwork um, with the Superman revamp. That was actually the first time I saw his artwork because I wasn't really following um, Marvel Comics at the time. Um, but I was, uh, I did like how it was very simplistic. Uh, some would even call it like cookie cutouts sometimes because he would really use a lot of solid black shapes um, mm -hmm. 
like the part where like Lex Luthor's in his all black suit and he's like holding the the edges of the um, of his jacket with his hands, but you can't see the the jacket. You you can only uh, imagine what the shape is because of the way his hands appear in front of him. Otherwise, you know, it's just a, a, a mass of black. And I just thought that was like kind of cheating and yet brilliant at the same time. But um, I, I guess I would describe it as kind of clean. It's it's dynamic. Um, I will say that everybody seems to look the same. Um, I've heard that now, before. You know, his faces tend to look like almost... Uh, uh, they're all related to each other, whether it's a male or a female. They all... <laughs> Um, if they don't look exactly the same, they look very, very similar. And, and that's, that's not bad. I mean, you could say that about other artists too, but, but it's, it's really pronounced with him. I think that's probably the only, uh, if you can call it a quibble, quibble that I have with it, with his artwork. Um, I thought the, um, the Superman Batman Generations series that he did was a wonderful premise but uh, unfortunately, his his artwork at that time seemed to be a lot looser than it used to be uh, in the '80s. And mm-hmm. from when I and, and of course his work in the '80s on Superman made me want to um, look for his earlier work that he did on Avengers and and Fantastic Four, and and it was very very tight. And I don't know if if, if a lot of that was because of the inkers that were used, or that was just the, the way the style was. I mean, I've I've noticed that a lot of artists would tend to seem to be a little bit looser, for lack of a better term, um, as as they got older. Neil Adams was one. He used to be really, really tight in the 70s. And, and while he still is tighter than most, he's not as tight as he used to be. Um, and, I, and I would say the same for Byrne. Um, those, but those, I, are very, those are very fair statements. I'll back you up on those, absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm flittering about a bit. Um, but I, I, I actually did enjoy the Superman-Batman Generations, which was probably the last burn work that I had purchased. Um, but but I think I would have liked it even better if he had the same tighter art style that he used to have in the 80s than, than he did in, in... This was in the early noughties, right, when that came out? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not the late 90s. But but um, but I did enjoy that. I did enjoy it, and he wrote and he wrote and drew it, and he, and he is a very good writer. I, I will admit that his writing sometimes gets a, a little too much with the exposition. But um, but I guess that just kind of reminds me of the old nineteen uh, sixties comic books. So I kind of find a nice little charm to it. But we're not here to talk about writing, are we? Well, I mean, he he did you know worked with Claremont for so long, it had to rub off somewhere. Uh, I will say, yes, his, his art got looser, especially like around the Next Men phase and stuff like that, and it was, wasn't as clean. However, oddly enough, a lot of his Star Trek work does look sort of more reminiscent of his earlier work than his later work. So even though the, so it's maybe there's a period in the middle that just wasn't quite up to what we were wanting, or maybe he was experimenting or trying to change, but again, his Star Trek work for IDW in more recent years has been fairly clean-lined. Rob, how would you, you got anything you can add to describing Burn? Uh, many years ago, I saw someone, I forget who it was, describe his Fantastic Four run mm-hmm. as like being Doctor Who with a budget. Okay. And, and I thought that was a really accurate statement because I, I, much like how I was complimenting Simonson taking on Thor and not scrapping everything, not rebooting, but just simply freshening up the concepts, I thought that's what he did for Fantastic Four. I loved his Fantastic Four comic. I bought it regularly off the stands. I thought it was like 
better than his X-Men stuff. I thought it was more fun, but it had that sort of pulpy melodrama that Stanley and Jack Kirby did so well. I mean, Ego the Living Planet, for Pete's sakes. I mean, I love all that. And when he brought She-Hulk into the book, and I thought he was terrific. And I loved his Superman. I mean, he did for Superman exactly what he was supposed to do. He freshened up the concept. Mm-hmm. Now, in that instance, they did reboot, but that I felt that was more of a corporate thing. But, I mean, he really did do, you know, for the longest time, him and Frank Miller were like the two giants of the industry. I mean, everything they touched was a success, and Byrne was kind of more the mainstream guy in a lot of ways. But but he deserved all of his plaudits because he was terrific. His Alpha Flight was great. The Alpha Flight number 12 remains one of my favorite oh. comics of all time because it's got such a whammy of an ending. But the buildup is great, too. So, yeah, I've always – I mean, I do think that a lot of the later stuff stuff's not really been to my taste but uh but it doesn't matter the stuff he did in the 80s and the, and the 70s and 80s and and in the, the 90s was tremendous stuff and i i his fantastic four run is another one of those books i need to buy because that stuff was so much fun i think he did such a great job and yeah he's a tremendous artist yeah and it's it's unfortunate like i mentioned because of his controversial nature a lot of people have sort of turned their backs on him or he's just oh he's that guy that used to be great go back and read that old stuff guys i'm reading actually the fantastic four for the first time i've never read his fantastic four run so i'm about two trades in on his fantastic four run and it's just absolutely glorious i mean every issue is so much fun and the art is beautiful and the story moves it forward it's a blast now i want to i want to touch on one thing you said zoom about how all of his characters look sort of the same a lot of people say that, and it's true as far as, like, if, when you hear that statement, you go, yeah, that's true. But then if you step back from it and go, well, Superman to Perry White to Jimmy Olsen to Pa Kent to Lex Luthor, they all have very distinct looks. So while everyone does look sort of the same, it looks sort of related, he actually does make people look different more so than we probably give him credit for. So, well, with, with Alpha Fair Flight, enough, for, fair enough. Well, no, I'm not disagreeing with you because I'm actually agreeing with your statement but then if I step back from it I, I guess I we probably owe him more credit than we instinctually give him because you're right you can look well, at call, a face have... you can look at you can look at any face he draws and go oh yeah that's a burn no doubt about it right you know that, yes, that guy, yes. it's so it's kind of um, like this it's kind of like the Spotify effect you know when you're wat- when you're listening to Spotify and it's like well if you like this song that means you'll like this song and if you like <laughs> this song then you'll like this song and you start with classical music and somehow you're listening to uh, gangster rap <laughs> it happens. It happens. It's the genome project. So, so you know, you 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 go. You you're jumping from Superman to Perry White, but I'm sure you know you go to a few people in between them. You'll kind of see Superman change into Perry White as you go across the panel. That could be. That could be. Well, a couple things just from, For, forget I said that. Never mind. That's fine. From Alpha Flight number one, you know, it, it, when I read it, read it, it reminded me that Byrne was the master of the recap. I mean, every comic he ever did, he had a recap on page two, and to tell you what, to get you caught up, and it was useful. Uh, does a great job there. He draws a fantastic, uh, what I call heroic man, which in this case was Guardian. You know, the, the clean lines, the beautiful aesthetic, the lean, trim, heroic posing all the time, even when they're in casual moments. Does a fantastic heroic man. You know, Heather, Jim, uh, you know, goes on later to become Guardian herself. He does a great job there. She's, she's basically a sexy, unintentionally sexy housewife. I mean, she's supposed to be in just jean cutoffs and running around in big glasses and a ponytail, but she's just totally hot, and he pulls it off. Um, excuse me, excuse me, Shag. Uh, is, are you talking Linda Evans hot or Joan Collins hot? Um, probably Linda Evans. <laughs> See, Heather's an adult. I can play this game now. So uh, <laughs> then uh, you know you get this wonderful full splash page about halfway through the book of Tundra 
who is an ancient Canadian, you know, mythical beast. And it and Tundra himself is all black and white, just done in blacks and whites. And the, the background's colored, you know, the mountains and the ground, because the creature's made of, you know, the very earth itself. It's truly a Canadian foe. And there's only two full splash pages in the whole book. The opening page, which is um, Guardian standing in an empty room giving you a sense that Department H is being closed, and then this Tundra page, which is just a complete kapow moment. So, again, if you haven't read any of Burns' old stuff from the 80s lately, Go back, find you know, find whatever you like, guys. Find the Alpha Flights, or find the X Men, or find the Fantastic Four, or the Superman, or whatever it is. Reread it, and I promise you, you're going to find as much joy in it as you did back then. It's so much fun, and he's a great artist. Okay, well, yeah, that's uh, the jumper. My second selection is going to be Frank Thorne, uh, the legendary Frank Thorne artist. He has been around penciling comics since 1948. Uh, he's done a lot. He did a lot of stuff for um, like Dell and Gold Key. Did Flash Gordon, Jungle Jim, The Green Hornet, Tom Corden, Space Cadet. Now I first saw him actually doing Marvel's Red Sonia, and uh, the book I'm going to talk about in specific is Red Sonia number one. He drew pretty much all the issues of that series. Frank Thorne is one of those artists. The way he drew Red Sonia, even as a kid, I used to think, "Am I allowed to look at this?" Uh, because uh, the, his women are un bearably sexy uh the way he draws women and uh they are beautiful they are fierce they are and and as a kid it i mean i you look at these red sonia comics and you really do wonder how they got approved by the comic code and it's not even that there's anything there's no nudity in these because obviously it's a marvel comic but just the simply the way frank thorne draws women they're so incendiarily sexy i just made up a word uh that you just (laughs) i i really am amazed that the comics code approved this book uh it, it really is unbelievable and one of the other things that uh, i mean i love the style it's not even just because i i thought it was sort of alluring but part of the attraction was the fact that that frank at the time in the 70s also did a lot of work for marvel magazine not marvel uh, warren magazines and warren magazines had nudity and he loved to draw naked women Frank Thorne Ooh, loves to draw. Him. I mean, yeah, he likes to draw women, topless women, women with six boobs and women with eight boobs. I mean, that was his thing. And I, you know, the fact that he would kind of cross over back and forth between Marvel and 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 Warren made me feel like, you know, like it was like an adult thing. You know, like the, this guy had sort of stumbled into the world of Marvel comics, but his work is just beautiful. And and again, similar to Simonson, it feels complete. It feels like a complete world. So if you look at uh, Red Sonia number one, which is the Blood of the Unicorn. Uh, which has been, uh, which is written by Roy Thomas, Clara Noto. I have no idea who that is. Uh, Frank Thorne did the art and the color, and this is really one of the more beautifully colored comics. I mean, Red Sony's hair pops off of every panel, and there's something about the the mix of styles in terms of when he draws Red Sonia, he draws her very simply with not a lot of detail. Her hair only has a couple of little lines in it. There isn't a lot of detail on her flesh, well, most of which you can see. But then everything else, or everything else around it, all the details, all the the creatures, all the animals, all the sort of demons, face are incredibly detailed, and it it gives it a really beautiful, classically illustrated look, even if it is. Like a little on the kind of dirty side, really. Again, um, his bad guys are really scary. The violence is very intense. People get, you know, swords to their necks and to their stomachs and things like that. And in the middle of it is this she-devil with a sword who is uh, just acrobatic. His figures, Zoom, you mentioned Dick Dillon's figures always being in motion. Frank Thorne's, when they fight, they, they seem to be flipping off the ground. 
in a bunch of ways. His layouts are really interesting. Uh, it's this is a guy whose work I have always loved, and uh, the more, and then later on when I grew I got old enough to start buying back issues. That's when I saw his work on Tomahawk, which is a book that I've talked about on this podcast before. He did the Son of Tomahawk Tomahawk run, which was the last vestige of that title. And he did that really well, the beautiful Western stuff. So he can handle virtually any genre. He drew almost no superheroes. In fact, I was looking through his credits. I can't find any superhero superhero stories at all. It's all science fantasy or... Uh, you know, Conan or Red Sonia. There's no superhero stories at all, and uh, he's he's a guy who managed to sort of again carve out a career in comics, never having to sort of morph his style to fit what was popular. It's it just really stands inc- to me incredibly unique, and uh, the Red Sonia comics are just absolutely gorgeous. I don't think they've ever been collected because I think Dark Horse owns Conan now. But man, these would look great in some sort of absolute edition because his I just I can look at his stuff all day and all night. I think it's just beautiful. He's got sort of a I don't want to say loose, but like you know, even look like I'm looking at the Red Sonia number one. Even the last page where it's got the six panels with the unicorn and um it, there's it's not a lot of detail. Nope. But the few lines that he uses to draw her tells the whole story. Uh, the way the wind's blowing, the you know what's going on with her body language, it's you know, really impressive. And yes, she's sexy as hell. Uh, now, I will say the cover is a lot more traditional superhero-y, comic-y looking, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. it's fantasy-based, as compared to the inside. Um, and I don't, and he is the cover artist, so I don't know what may have driven that difference. I'm going to bet that this cover was laid out by John Romita and Frank Thorne executed it. It's got a very Romita, very Marvelish cover. Uh, in terms of the style, I, and that's that's how they did that back then. Carmen did the way Carmen Infantino did layouts for DC covers. Romita did Marvel layouts. So I'm going to bet you this is a Romita layout with Frank Thorne pencils. Uh, that would make yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Now, any idea who that? Uh, and this isn't a big issue, but did Frank do the lettering in this? Because no one's credited as a letterer anywhere. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's, I wouldn't be shocked if he did because a lot this this lettering style seemed to follow a lot of his work. So it wouldn't surprise me if he did it. It seems to if if it isn't him, it's a letterer who followed him from story to story because a lot of his stuff in the Warren looked like this. Yeah, there's some, well, there's some crazy. In, Go ahead, Zoom. No, I'm I'm sorry, but I know in later issues of Red Sonia, Frank Thorne is uh, credited as the letterer. Oh, I didn't even know that. Okay, so, well then it's got to be him. Yeah, it's there's there's some. There's some like little flourishes of the lettering that I love, which is why I wanted to ask. Like on page two, on the bottom right hand corner, there's there's a corner box caption, but it flows naturally with the panel border, and yep. it looks really cool. But then there's other captions, like on page three, which are sort of bat crap crazy. I mean, there's caption boxes everywhere, and they're all different colors and shapes and <laughs> line <laughs> width and everything. It's sort of a little amateurish, but um, but it's just interesting that it it, it draws attention to it. So, Well, much like what Simon said, I've never seen a Frank Thorne story drawn that I haven't liked. And again, this is somebody who almost always inked himself. Uh, maybe that's something to do with it. I, I can't imagine somebody having to ink this because, again, it's it's very simple in some places. Her face is drawn with very few lines. I mean, Alex Toth was the master of that. I mean, if that's, that's how you knew you were a good artist, if you could draw as little as possible and it still worked. Uh, but then again, there's other panels that are highly detailed. His backgrounds and his, his, uh, you know, like his uh, where the the buildings and the rooms where people are placed are highly detailed. It's really, again, it just doesn't look like anything else you see in comics. And 
Uh, I I just I don't know. I, I'm just I marvel at it. And he's still around. He's he lives in New Jersey. Uh, I would love to meet him sometime. I uh, I had a friend of a friend of I know someone who was a friend of his, and I tried to sort of figure out is there any way I could commission him to do a mirror, oh, which wow. would have been amazing. Now, unfortunately, it was way more money than I could have possibly afforded. Not that it wouldn't be worth it, uh, but uh, you know. But yeah, I because I, I that was my immediate thought of like, can you imagine what a mirror drawing by Frank Thorne would look like? It would just pop your eyes out of your skull. But uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and he's still and he still is a r- wonderful artist. He still does do pinups here and there. Uh, and uh, it's it, he used to do Comic Con appearances with uh, different women that would cosplay as Red Sonia. So he had a pretty good life. <laughs> you mentioned uh, yeah. You so mentioned... going back, oh sorry. Oh. I'll say one thing, and then you Sorry, take us from there. I've, I've only got one quick thing to yeah. say. Um, okay. You mentioned his son of Tomahawk work. You know, by, this is 1977 when he did this Red Sonja book. Yep. Um, and then by 1985, when he does that one entry in Who's Who, is all, all he does, one entry in Who's Who, it's one of my favorite pages in all of Who's Who, which is Hawk's son of Th- Tomahawk. Right, and right. And it's such an awesome-looking page. He looks so cool. And you drew, my, drew attention to it for me because I – I, I don't know if pay attention to the Western guys and just really looking at the line work and the use of blacks and things like that on that drawing. is just amazing. So, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Why don't you, why don't you take it from there? No, I didn't mean to talk over you and I'm sure uh, Rob could uh, edit that out. So I don't look so rude. No, quit apologizing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when she, when he was talking about uh, just how, Sexy, right? Uh, Sonia looks. It's it, it's it was very um, uh, different from a lot of the comics that were there at the time because you know it, it seemed like the comic style of drawing women back in in the late seventies, early eighties was, was that um, they couldn't respond. The, the the female body could not respond to movement and gravity as it would in real life. But um, Frank Thorne actually does that with Red Sonia. Um, and I find it very interesting that there is actually more detail in her clothing than in the character itself, mm-hmm. with all the intricate uh, with all the intricate pieces of her armor. And yes, what you were saying about how the backgrounds are so detailed while the characters are drawn rather simply, it, it almost has like that cartoon feel, you know, where you where you have like the the single cell characters in the front with very very little detail, but the backgrounds are like these lavish paintings. And I'm looking at some black and white artwork right now from Red Sonia number eight, and and I get that feeling right there because the backgrounds are just so uh, highly detailed with the line work. Yeah, I would love to see what like an animated. Can you imagine like what an animated cartoon would look like based on the work of Frank Thorne? It would be amazing. It would be. I mean, it would probably kill somebody having to animate it. But it would especially be, if they did the backgrounds. Especially if they did the backgrounds. Yeah, it would be amazing. And I said his his work is not to put not to put too fine a point. It very sexy. I mean, his people are alluring looking. I mean, his villains are villainous, but his women are 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 fearsome. But they're they're incredibly beautiful and sexy and alluring. And it's just he just I don't think he can draw people. I don't think he knows how to draw women that are not supremely attractive he just he just has that ability so yeah uh he's a he's a really great guy and i really you know i would love it if uh somebody would uh, give him some give him a comic gig or something he maybe he's retired i don't know he's like in his 80s now so but uh you know i i would love to see him still do something nowadays if he was if he was up for it because again i just never tire looking at his stuff it's very interesting how how uh thorn now thorn created red sonia right no he did not uh, that's uh, Red Sony's right from the right from the books by Robert E. Uh, the Conan creator. 
Oh, I see, I see. So he's not actually the first person to illustrate Red Sonja then? No, Barry Windsor Smith did in uh, the Conan comic book. Okay. Oh, that's right. That's right. I have seen that. But what what I've seen from from how Thorne draws uh, Red Sonia, she looks very exotic. Mm-hmm. She has a she has a very um, I wouldn't say necessarily Asian, but but it, but most people that tend to draw Red Sonia since tend to make her look like an American or or like a Wonder Woman with red hair. Mm-hmm. So there there was just a look to her that that Frank Thorne did that I don't think any other artist actually matched or even tried to match which uh which I guess made made him kind of like the the Red Sonia artist to me anyway he was like the definitive Red Sonia artist because of the way he he drew her and and uh, I guess I'm just a little bit taken aback that he actually wasn't the first to illustrate her Yeah I mean to me he's she's He's the definitive artist for this character. He just is. I agree with you. She does. She does look like an American, and all these other the the dynamite con- or whoever I, I forget who has her. I think it's dynamite that has the right story. It's, she. It's all complicated. She split off from Conan or something like that. But but yeah, he does. He gives her an exotic kind of look. All this stuff is exotic, and all the all the stories he liked to work on. He did some stuff for Atlas Comics, and he did a, a version of Lawrence of Arabia for a uh, an atlas comic and again he just did really interesting stuff and uh, i would have loved to have seen him do superhero work i guess he just was never interested but yeah just uh, a really great guy and uh, i hope that anybody who listening to this hasn't heard of him will take a look at some of the pages and dig some of his stuff up uh if you google you can see a lot of his pages and a lot of his pinups it's just amazing amazing work not safe for work though no don't do it at work yeah <laughs> don't 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 do that at work so, Ange, stop, stop, Ange, now. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Zoom, who are, who are we wrapping up the show with? We are going to wrap up the show with, with one of my favorite artists who has been mentioned a few times already on this show, uh, George Perez. Woo! Um, boy, to sum up his career, that's hard. I mean, his career spans 40 years, uh, from an assistant to Rich Buckler at Marvel to Penciler at the Avengers to moving to DC to create the new Teen Titans with Marv Wolfman, and, of course, the success of that series totally eclipsing his brief concurrent run on Justice League of America following the death of, of Dick Dillon. Um, of course, he illustrated Crisis on Infinite Earths, which was essentially the series that first showed the industry how an epic crossover event is done. Um, he later revitalized Wonder Woman as both a writer and artist. He worked on a number of independent projects, including the iBots and uh, Crimson Plague, which was a very ambitious creator-owned endeavor, which unfortunately did not endure. Uh, he later came back to a fairly good run on Kurt Busiek's um, Avengers series, which led to the long-awaited JLA Avengers miniseries, uh, which again had that grand epic scope that, to me, was just as high as, as Crisis on Infinite Earths, and on and on and on. I think everybody here knows who, who George Perez is, and if, and if you don't, there's this little thing called Google, and fortunately you don't have to put an accent on the first D to find him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, the, the, the big key thing for me in a comic book artist is, is storytelling, and George Perez's sense of storytelling is phenomenal. Every panel... It just flows effortlessly. It's if I'm watching a movie. Um, and in some cases, you know, he uses these wonderful visual cues in the panels or in the page to draw the eye precisely where it needs to go. Um, and I'm not just talking about linear storytelling either. I mean, there's this wonderful, almost two-page spread 
uh, in JLA Avengers number four, where members of both teams are making modifications to one of Aquaman's Atlantean Warcrafts. And then there are these like seven cutaway shots on, individ on individual characters that are like happening at the same time. And they just add a little richer detail to this already awesome scene that you're seeing. So it it's just amazing. Um, and of course, talking about detail, his detail is amazing. I mean, you know, as a f former Manwa uh, background artist, as I've said, uh, I know the difficulties of creating a background setting that's that's supposed to anchor the comic book panel. And very few comic artists nowadays seem to put as much care into the background as George Perez still does. Um, and, and the same is said for his crowd scenes. He can draw multiple characters <laughs> in a scene. He can give each one special attention. And this is actually going to lead to one of the only two complaints I've ever heard about George Perez's art. I know you've said earlier that nobody complains about George Perez's art. I have actually heard a few. But maybe that's because I've been around longer than you two. I don't know. Or you were listening <laughs> but... to Frank. <laughs> well, what you said earlier about... Um, about Art Adams, sorry, Arthur Adams, excuse me, <laughs> uh, where sometimes with so many lines it can tend to lose focus. Well, one of the complaints I, I see about George Perez's art is about like a crowd fight scene. Like say, take page four to five of, of JLA Avengers number two. That's the double page spread. It's almost completely filled with the first battle of both the JLA and the Avengers, the full teams against each other. A reader does not know what you're supposed to look at first. I mean, you can just get lost in all that detail, and I can understand that. There's a lot going on, but to me, it doesn't really matter because no matter where you start, you're going to find something very interesting, and and you're just going to enjoy it, and you just move on to the next one. And and sometimes Perez puts some little clever bits in there that, you know, as a longtime comic fan, I just enjoy. Um, there, There's, uh, like... Like how the, the honest look of surprise as Batman uh, is, is passing through the vision when he's trying to, to, to kick him. Or that look on Plastic Man's face as Quicksilver is tying him around a roof antenna at super speed. And, oh, oh yes, just the fact that Quicksilver is actually tying Plastic Man around a, a roof antenna at super speed. You know, you can see little bits of storytelling and even the minor details. There's just something in, in each character's facial expression or the body language that just adds that extra dimension in the panel. You, know, you mentioned these, uh, these crowd scenes and things like that, and I, I heard him at a panel discussing that, and one of the things he always likes to do is he, he liked writers giving him characters to put in because he would always put in more characters than they asked for. That was kind of one of the things he'd like to do was always give a little more than the writer asked for just to give him kind of a wow. And you, know, you see that in Crisis with just so many characters on the page, and he still pulls it off. And apparently the only time he ever got frustrated with this was with Jeff Johns. In the um, Legion of Three Worlds story, where apparently oh. Jeff anticipated George being that way, so Jeff listed out the hundreds and hundreds of characters that he had to put in every single panel, and uh, apparently that did frustrate George. That's the only time I've ever heard anything negative come out of George's mouth, actually. He's such an incredibly positive, excitable guy. Um, Oh, yes. Uh, from what I've seen in interviews, and I, and I have actually met the man a few times, too, and, and he is just uh, he is just so charming, and, and he loves the fans, he appreciates the fans, uh, and I don't know how he could put up with us. <laughs> but he does. Enough, I have a hard enough time just putting up with Rob, let alone the rest of you guys. 
I mean, he's been, I'm ignoring that. He's been the uh, yeah. I mean, he's been the center of attention in terms of superhero fans for thirty odd years now, almost forty. It is amazing. I mean, he's been able to sustain a, a very long career in comics, pretty much at the heart of it. You know, through through most of his career too, which is remarkable. I mean, you know, styles change and. You know, people that were once huge are kind of relegated to the margins as, as as tastes change. But Perez manages to sort of attain that cachet about himself, which is remarkable. I mean, I think the work has remained very good. But uh, oh they, yes, it's it's if anything, it's gotten better and better. Yeah, I mean that's 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 a remarkable thing. I mean, it really is. And I can't. I mean, I still say he to me is the ultimate superhero artist. Period. He more, is. And more he than is. more than a Kirby, more than. I just think of who who sums up superhero comic book art. It's George Perez. Perez. I just cannot. I, I just don't think there's anyone uh, that's to to that level. I would agree. Indeed, indeed. Yes, uh, and he's he's drawn so many people in costumes, and he's designed so many costumes. In fact, his costume designs can get a bit over the top, and this was the other complaint that I have heard about his <laughs> Jericho. art. Is that his... <laughs> Jericho. <laughs> Basically, that his costume designs are essentially designed to be drawn only by George Perez. That's fair. I find I I find his costume designs very interesting, and having actually drawn a few of them uh, for the line it is drawn, uh, it it is a chore, I'll admit, but it's still fun uh, with all those little details. But I guess it's just no surprise, you know, just going back to the Teen Titans, that it was any wonder that Starfire and Troya's costumes just seemed to change so much during the, the, the mid-1990s because they just didn't want to put all those details in there anymore. Mm. That's called job security. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but, you know, just Perez has, is really exceptional just simply designing characters as unique characters. We talked about how John Byrne kind of, they all look related or they all look alike, but they still have some distinctions between different characters. But, you know, at the risk of exuding impropriety, if, if you take all of the characters that George Perez draws and remove all of the clothing and all of the hair, they will all look like completely different people. Mm. I mean, not just the face, but the bodies, everything. You know, he, he always tries to come up with a distinct look and a distinct body type. They, they, he's, not, he's not necessarily using a, a cookie-cutter model like other artists tend to do. To, to back up what you're saying, I'm looking at a five-foot-long poster, uh, The Crisis on Infinite Earths, um, painted, drawn by Perez, painted by Alex Ross uh, cover. Yes, it's fantastic. Uh, it, it hangs over my desk. I get to look at it all day long while I'm working. And it's got 500 characters on it. And uh, to back up what you're saying, I see tons and tons of different body styles and faces, exactly like you're saying, and 500 characters. And he took the time to make, you know, darn near everyone look unique. I know. It's amazing. I actually saw the pencil art for that one somewhere. It was published in, in like, a wizard magazine or something, and I was just floored. Mm. What was the uh, – you, you uh, showed us a story. What was the story you specifically wanted to talk about that Perez did? Oh, yes, yes. I, I – um... Basically, you know, uh, when you're talking about Perez with so many high-profile projects, uh, I wanted to select a, a story to kind of focus on that was a, a basically a lesser-known example, but it was Ultra still a gem. Force, to Ultra me. Force number one. Good choice. <laughs> you know, I was tempted. I was tempted, actually, for that one. But, you know, um, I... I uh, in terms of storytelling, you know, there, there's a six-page story. It's a hard-to-find gem, probably. There, there was a book that was published by Top Cow called Common Grounds, which was basically about a coffee shop 
um, that superheroes and supervillains would frequent. And they would just tell these little side stories that would take place and somehow revolve around this shop. But uh, there was a six-page backup story uh, in Common Grounds number four called Glory Days. It was illustrated by George Perez. And it's a heartfelt story about a team of retired superheroes who, who are attending a reunion or a tribute event of sorts. And of course, it's catered by Common Grounds. So there's our Common Ground. Um, but all the heroes are older, they're in their civilian identities, but the superhero element is just cleverly introduced in a narrative device involving uh, trading cards that the main character, he's a flying hero named Liftoff, he brings these cards along to the event. So these cards are kind of interspersed with the panels, and they, and they basically show each hero in one panel of youthful heroic glory, while the rest of the panels show how much time has actually changed these characters. And I'm sure most of these ideas were, were probably already written in the script by the writer, but the way the characters interact with their expressions and their body language, and the way Perez can actually show the, 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 the different ages and not make them look like completely different people, um, and and also the the trading card device, just the way Perez is able to cleverly capture everything you need to know about each one of these different hero characters in a single panel. I don't think any other artist would have done as good of a job as Perez has done on that. And again, there are, uh, like I say, there are all these little bits of storytelling in the art and in the backgrounds. Uh, there's a scene where Liftoff is receiving a drink from one of the caterers uh, at the Punch Bowl, and, and the caterer is very fetching, by the way, but he's paying no attention to her. He's actually looking at the trading card of, of a female superhero that he kind of has a fancy for, and you can tell by the look on his face that he has a fancy for it, even before you start reading the words about it. And then there are fun bits in the background. There's like a conversation that involves a talking dinosaur. And there's an amphibious Hulk-like character in a suit dancing with a woman in the background. And it's being portrayed as if both these things are, are everyday occurrences, and which in this world they would be. It's just brilliantly done. It's a very quite a quiet story, especially when you think that what Perez has been known for, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths and whatnot. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, yes, it's it's yes. all character stuff, and yeah, he does it just as well as he does the other stuff. Right, Almost. exactly. It's not just all a a bombastic action. He's really, really good at, at characterization and 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 quiet scenes. And and I'm sorry, Shag, I interrupted you. I was just going to say, why don't you tell the people at home what you did for Rob and I with this story? Oh yes, well, what I did as as kind of an experiment is I scanned the pages, all six pages, and I removed all of the words. And I sent the, the pages to, to Shag and Rob for them to just look at just the art to see if they can get a sense of what was going on in the story without any of the aid of the words. And then, of course, I uh, sent them the, the, the pages with the text a little bit later. Um, so how did that experiment go? It was fascinating. Uh, it was – I didn't pick up on what was going on immediately on page one. I could tell it was a reunion on page one. Uh, but by page two, I had figured out the trading card device and understood what was going on and followed the story fairly well uh, up until the end. And it was a really neat way to just explore a silent story that wasn't intended to be a silent story. And yet Perez's storytelling just carried it through. You really got the sense of what was happening. Did you have the same experience, Rob? Yeah. The, the trading card thing I didn't quite fully grok, but, but I mean the emotions of it and the – the sort of, uh, I mean, especially the final page of them dancing at the end. Yeah, you you can sort of get the gist of it without all the word balloons, which is, again, extraordinary considering. 
Yes. Uh, my favorite scene, of course, is where, where they have the flaming follicle. Right. Which is a, a brilliant, which is a brilliant name. But basically, it's a, it's a character that's like Medusa. He's got this hair that he can manipulate. And, and the trading card, you see him like, you know, tangling his hair around this, this criminal. And then they show the shot of him there. And he's like practically bald. And, and, and he's like laughing as he's looking at his card. He's like feeling his head. He's feeling like his bald head and the few strands of hair that are still there, you know, and, and, and he's just laughing as he's looking at the card. And it, I, I just thought that 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 panel was just so brilliant. And we, we've got to put that up on your new spanking website since you no longer have the Tumblr page. Now, now to be fair, um, the flaming follicle is probably my favorite as well, because I used to look like that when in college um, with the hair and all of that. So it's felt it was a pretty good representation of me then and then and now. I think we've hit the end of this episode, don't you? <laughs> I do have to say one more thing. Common Ground is available, by the way, on in-stock trades. Um, it is collected. You can get it for $8.24. Uh, it's, the, it's the full run there of Common Ground. It does include the George Perez story. And I wanted to mention this specifically because one of our listeners actually tipped me off to this book a while back, and I actually hadn't had a chance to check it out. It's been on my list to look at. I want to say it was Gene Hendricks, if I remember right, if, I, if I'm wrong. Sorry, but I'm pretty sure it was Gene that tipped me off with this book uh, and had said what a great uh, sort of anthology and, and little mini-story collection it is. So sounds like the whole thing's probably worth grabbing. Oh, indeed. I, I've enjoyed a few of the other uh, stories in that particular issue. Um, j- just, um, you know, the, the art of Perez, of course, overshadowed everything, and it was the last story of the book. But, but a lot of those other stories in Common Grounds are, are just brilliantly done, and, and they usually have this twist in the end that you didn't expect. Always fun. Very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's it for us. I think we're, we're, we've exhausted ourselves talking about our favorite artists. We certainly suggest all of you go out there, go to Insect Trades, and find what you can for the work of Art Adams, John Byrne, Walt Simonson, Dick Dillon, George Perez, Frank Thorns, all good stuff. And you can take a look at our site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, and we'll have some samples of all of this work up there. And you can gaze at it longingly because it's all so beautiful. What else do we want to say, Shag, before we wrap up? We want, I guess we have to thank, thank Zoom for coming on the show. It, it's been a real pleasure, Zoom. I mean, we've, we've talked with you, you know, with our fingers for a long time, and uh, this is the first time we've had a chance to you know, speak with you face to, or voice to voice and uh, to have you on the show, and uh, we really appreciate I, your contributions to the Who's Who podcast and your contributions to the Fire and Water podcast have been so appreciated. They're absolutely wonderful. They warm our hearts, and um, every single installment is like a little surprise and an exciting, exciting, fun present. So thank you. Well, you, you know, you've entertained me. This is the least I could do. It's my pleasure. You hear that, folks? All of you at home. We expect, uh, you know, art, songs, everything. Come on, start sending that stuff in. Chop, chop. You're, yeah, you're yeah. already getting it. You want more. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, Zoom, and, <laughs> Zoom and Luke can't do everything. Come on. <laughs> well, um, folks, one more thing to think about. You know, go out to Tomorrow's Press and I... I if not every one of the artists we talked about, most of the artists have a Modern Masters volume out there. And they're just gorgeous books. And they're so much fun to, to flip through and see the art and read the interviews with the, with the creators. And uh, just great stuff. I, 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 I was late to the podcast tonight because I was ordering another one. and uh, Actually, I ordered two. And um, one of them I was all excited about. And I was getting ready to jump on the podcast and realized I already owned it. So I had to go back and cancel the order and I was late to the podcast. So It was hidden under all those sad sack comics. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, again, Zoom, why don't you, actually, Zoom, why don't you tell the folks at home where they can find you on the interwebs? Well, I've, I've been known to make rare appearances on Facebook and Twitter under my own name. 
you can also view my feeble attempts at creativity at the line it is drawn, which is a weekly sketch challenge feature of the Comics Should Be Good blog on the Comic Book Resources website. Whew, that's a mouthful. Uh, but a Google search <laughs> of... But you just do a Google search that just say, type in line it is drawn CBR, and that should get you there real quick. And, of course, right above my art submissions on the line, which comes out every Friday, uh, is a link to my blog site, uh, Omelette au Fromage, which can be found at zoom, X-U-M hyphen, yukonori.blogspot.com. And there you will find posts about the first time I fell in love and my first kiss and how I met my wife and the night I lost my virginity. You know, essentially topics of great interest to comic book fans. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I'm I, reading I, tonight. I also have a few entries here and there that serve as like Blu-ray behind-the-scenes extras on certain line pieces I have done. Um, and there are a couple of random thoughts related to comic books and cartoons, but no one really wants to read those, I suppose. <laughs> oh, and I also have a 1-900 number. I'm bringing that, I'm bringing that fad back into the, into the 21st century. So you call 1-900-PROFXUM to hear a special pre-recorded message from Professor Zoom sharing his special thoughts and feelings. And listening to this load of self-serving claptrap will only cost you $2 for the first minute and $1 each additional minute. And since I'm not a real professor, you do not need your parents' permission to call. Oh, and as an aside, gentlemen, one of those locations I have described is not real. <laughs> I cannot tell you how big my eyes have been. I was like, I was starting to get, I was like, Shag, I think Zoom's gone crazy. <laughs> But wait, we'll throw in six Ginsu knives. <laughs> you now, how much will you pay? <laughs> you know what? Let's not even address which one might be fictitious. Let's let the people at home figure that out. Anyway, so Zoom, it has been absolutely wonderful having you on the show, folks. You can also find my friend Rob. I use that term loosely. Out on the interwebs, you can find uh, him at AquamanShrine.net. You can also find him on Facebook and Twitter under the same handle of Aquaman Shrine. You can also find him under the handle of uh, Film and Water Pod. And you can find both of us under the Twitter handle of FW Podcasts. That's plural. That's a whole lot of social media there. You can find me over at FirestormFan.com. You can find me under the same handle on a couple of the social medias. Just go find them. And then uh, go visit our website, our brand new spanking beautiful website, FireWaterPodcast.com. Yay. Woohoo. It's really Anything I'm forgetting, Rob? Uh, no, I think that's it. If I'm going to do a little self-promotion, my review of Deadpool is up on 13thDimension.com. You can uh, read it and enjoy it. I mean, I think everybody's seen Deadpool, <laughs> Deadpool at this point. But in case you want to read a review of it, go right ahead. It's over on 13thDimension.com. Was it Deadpool for Virgins or something like that? What did you call it? Uh, yeah, Deadpool for Virgins. I, I am curious, Deadpool. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually read that review, and I enjoyed it as much as I did the movie. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun to write. It was a fun movie to watch and a fun review to write. Man, he is just really hankering to get back on the show, a reappearance. Man. I love it. I, I'm, I'm busy writing down that phone number, so we should wrap <laughs> this up. All right, folks. Thanks again, Zoom. Thank you, Rob. Thank you uh, to all the amazing artists that have entertained us all these years. And uh, until next time, fan the flame and ride the wave. Storm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. They stand for truth and justice and see a 
She is totally hot. Okay, again, Shag, to just help clarify for the listeners who cannot see what you're talking about, are you talking about Bugs Bunny dressed in drag to fool Oliver Fudd hot or Tom Hanks gaining entry into his bosom buddy's apartment hot? 